Well, the message this morning will come from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. And with today's message, we are now halfway through this 12-part series on 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. And our purpose has been, Lord willing, the Apostles' purpose, unity in the Church of Christ. That's what these first two chapters of this letter, this book in the Bible are about, unity in the church. I want to remind you that the first nine verses of this letter, the greeting from Paul, hello, it's Paul the Apostle to you, the church. And very quickly, he says, let's get down to the problem here, divisiveness and unity. That's the whole first two chapters, and he gets right to the point. And from verse 10 to the end of chapter 2, he rebukes, he proves, he encourages, he commands, he cajoles all manner of persuasion employed towards this one goal, this goal that Pastor Aaron Owens and I have had in picking these two chapters to preach through in this 12-part series, unity in the church that they would repent of, recognize, and then repent of their divisive ways and show forth to the world the wisdom and the power of God. How? In their unity. In their unity. In their mutual love and fellowship, they prove then, as we prove today, no less than they did then, the power and the wisdom of God to unite and to save. To unite and to save. This is Paul's purpose. This is where we've been in this series as we're now halfway through. And before we begin verses 26 to 31, I want to lock this purpose in your mind. I want you to understand this is what we're doing here. Churches that are unified need to be strengthened in their unity. Churches that are being divided need to repent and become unified. This is the purpose. This is why Paul wrote these first two chapters before he got into all those other things that were going on in Corinth. There are many lessons that can be drawn from the passages here. These sections, they're good lessons, they're enduring lessons, but too often when we simply draw lessons, we lose sight of the context and we turn the Bible into sort of a life coach. This is all introductory, we'll get to the message in a moment. And so I want you to remember, I want to remind you how we got to where we are here in this preaching. And Lord willing, you will see that my and Pastor Owen's unrelenting emphasis on unity is following the inspired apostle's pen in his emphasis on this one subject. Verse 110, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear those words, that you all agree. Then verses 11 and 12, he says, I've heard there's quarreling among you. Remember how Pastor Owens taught how low the bar is for what quarreling is in the church. We don't have to be at each other's throat to be in quarreling. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow, and then put in the name of a man. And two weeks ago, Pastor Owens taught us the error of vesting so much spiritual authority in mere mortals. Sacerdotalism was the name of that. Verses 18 to 20, human wisdom and techniques were disgraced by God's wisdom on the cross. Verse 20 says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? The implied question is, why are you following men? Why are you de-unifying as you follow men? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, around whom you're gathering, only vehicles for proclaiming God's wisdom and unifying the church. 
verses 21 to 25, the cross is the sign that God gives of his power and his wisdom. And doing anything more is unfaithfulness of the worst kind. It is spiritual adultery. This is where Paul's been taking us. Unity was his concern. Unity was his goal for the Corinthian church. Unity must be our goal. Paul accomplished this by the positive by driving us to the cross of Jesus Christ and in the negative by exposing to us our divisive tendencies. So the, this morning, verses 26 to 31 in 1 Corinthians 1 are going to force us to take a deeper look at ourselves and the things in us that cause division in the church. To put another way, we look for those, those things within us that fail to promote unity. And this morning is about boasting. The title of the message is Boasting in the Lord. I could have just as easily, as you will see as we go through it, title it Boasting Against the Lord. So with no more introduction, let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, the late Muhammad Ali, arguably the greatest boxer of all time, actually declared himself the greatest of all time. And when he was confronted with the magnitude of that boast, you know what he said? He said, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. And back it up he did against some of the best fighters the world had seen up to that time. And soon after his I'm the greatest boast, he was hoisting a world championship belt. Now his braggadocio was sort of fun. It was entertainment, and it was entertaining. The boasting Paul writes of isn't fun at all. The boasting Paul writes of wasn't entertainment, and it wasn't amusing. While one can sort of wink at an athlete or an entertainer's self-promotion in church, there's nothing funny about it. You see, the Corinthians were boasters. They were boasters. And you might ask, how so? How were they boasters? They were boasters by aligning themselves with men. Those I follows that I reminded you of from chapter 1, verse 11. They were boasting in what? That they had picked the best leader? That they had picked the most erudite? They had picked the purest, the best in some way? They were boasting that they knew more than the other guy who picked the other leader. And neither should have picked a man at all. Now, this is not how we usually view this, but it follows the apostles' thought lines. By boasting in themselves, they were boasting against the Lord. They're boasting in themselves by picking the best leader. My leader's better than your leader. And in essence, that was boasting against the Lord, against God's choices, against God's wisdom. Boasting is divisiveness. Boasting is a failure to believe God. Boasting is a failure to promote unity, which is what we should all be doing. And boasting comes very easily to us all. The Corinthians might have been shocked 
to hear that by picking such a great leader as even Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, that the Bible, that God, through the apostle, defines that as boastfulness. Boasting, brethren, is divisive. And it comes so easily to us. Verse 26 removes any basis for boasting by showing us that God's choice of you or me had nothing to do with anything intrinsic in us. He chose us for his own good pleasure, which is informed by his own sovereign will. That's verse 26. Verses 27 to 29 tell us the purpose that God had in mind, which is to bring to shame the unbeliever's worldview and to eliminate any cause for anyone to boast before him. And finally, verses 30 and 31 tell of our total dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ for anything, and it leaves us boasting in Him and in Him alone, for there's no one else worth boasting about. Certainly not us. So these three basic divisions will bring us to an understanding of how easily boasting comes to us and how bad it is in the church to be boasting. I want you to see how easily we cross that line. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful, not many were of noble birth. The question is, how can you boast when God chose you like this? What do you have to boast about when you were chosen from not wise, not powerful, and not noble? Now, no one would actually say, I would hope, that God chose me to be in Christ Jesus because I'm so grand. Nobody would say that. I mean, you know, we'd say the Lord really needed someone like me. Paul says to think about this. Think about this carefully. Consider your calling. Calling by, from Paul always means your salvation, your election, your call. You're being drawn out of the world. When Jesus Christ says, I will draw all to me that the Father has given me. Consider that calling. Consider that you are the passive recipient of it. Consider your calling and that it didn't come from anything in you that made God attracted to you. And he said, I'm going to call this one. Consider it carefully, says the Apostle Paul. As you gather around your favorite apostle or evangelist or pastor or author or whoever has attracted your laud and attention, Have you ever been the victim of one of those kind of sorts who always seem to have to poke a hole in something that rob from you the, share, the pleasure of sharing something? They're always erecting these boundaries. I think about that as I think about this verse. You know, when you say, you know, I want to share something with you. Did you hear on the radio station this morning where this preacher said, and you say, well, no, you know, that guy's got some Arminian tendencies. I, I'm not very blessed by him. Whoa, what is that? Putting up a boundary, putting up a barrier, saying, well, I follow the, the better guy, the better reformed guy. I can't be blessed by one. Well, no, it's just this one thing he said. Yeah, I know he's Arminian, and I know, but he just said, okay, well, go ahead. If you have to be blessed by somebody who's so off the rails as that. Have you known that yourself where you bring something up and you find that the person you're talking to just knows there's one problem with that guy or with that book or with that author. You violated this doctrine. You forgot this part of the systematic theology. Okay, well, go ahead and tell me if you must. 
That's sort of what this is like. I don't mean taking away someone's joy. That's not the point here. It's the erecting of boundaries that are unnecessary. It's these people gathering around. I'm going to follow Paul. I'm going to follow Cephas. I'm going to follow Paulus. I'm going to make sure that you know that you're lesser because you're not following the one that I follow. This is what the apostle was speaking of here to the Corinthians. And we fall into this so easily, erecting these boundaries that need not be made. What if all those not many's that I read in 126 have to do with boasting? Remember that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Remember that you received the calling. You didn't generate the calling. Remember that only a few of those who were called were wise or powerful or noble. And keep in mind what the apostle does not say. He does not say that you were called because you're unwise or lacking in worldly power and influence or are less than blue blood by birth any more than he says that that's the reason those qualities or advantages were chosen for those reasons. He simply says not many. Not many were chosen. We're here because we're chosen. You know, in World War I, the English, and I think it was mostly the Scottish regiments, had this song that they sang as they're there on the Western Front in the trenches with that no man's land being surveyed by machine guns. They sang, we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. Sort of a fatalistic thing. We're here because we're here because we're here and so forth. And sort of like that, we're chosen because we're chosen because we're chosen because we're chosen. We're chosen because God chose us. How can we boast about that when we're chosen simply because God chose? What do these not many's have to do with this? Not many were chosen for power or influence or wealth or noble birth. I mean, on a strictly practical level, it makes perfect sense. Why not many? Because there aren't many of them. God didn't choose many wise because there aren't many to choose from. Look at us. Not many wise. There aren't a lot of wise people, and if everyone was wise, then really no one is wise. Not many powerful. Because if everyone is powerful, nobody's powerful. Not many powerful because by definition there aren't many of them. And so forth with the nobility and all the other things. It could be just that simple. That there just aren't many of those to choose from. But you know, there's an anecdote about this verse that most commentators cite. And almost all preachers use. And I don't want you to feel left out, so I want to give it to you. In the mid-1800s, there was a lady, Huntington. And she was of noble birth. She was a wealthy English aristocrat. And she was an avid supporter of George Whitfield and some of the other good preachers of his day. She financed over 60 churches. And when she read this verse, she's the one who said that she was saved by an M, by the letter M. The apostle, she would quip, didn't say not any, but he added an M and said not many, like me. Well, she was chosen. It wasn't because she was wise or powerful or noble. God doesn't need her or our skills. He chooses whom and he chooses why he will. And so the apostle here is following kind of an old pattern. He's describing God's choice in the negative. He's saying, this is, why God, this is not why God chose you. This is what he didn't find in you that caused him to choose you. We're being reminded here that we are the recipients of the calling. And God did it for his own purposes and not because he saw anything in you or me or anyone else that said, oh, I need that one. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, has Moses telling Israel about their election, about their calling. And he says why it was not. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. In other words, you're not more impressive. You're not smarter. You're not wiser. You're not anything better than anyone else that would cause me to have picked you. It was not for that reason that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. You were the least impressive of all, all peoples. You were the least likely of all choices. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Because he chose them. What caused him to choose them? His own free, sovereign choice. That's not exactly the self-esteem credo of the world, but it's God's own truth for them and it's God's truth for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says to us, God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. From before the foundation of the world, before we existed, God's sovereign decree had been made. And that's when he chose us, before we had any skill, any talent, anything to offer to anyone. God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Now there's purpose to it. There's purpose to it. But there's nothing in it to boast about. There's no hint that anyone impressed God so much that he just had to have that one, have you or me on the team. And it's not like professional sports drafts, like in the NFL, they have the draft. They just had it a few months ago, didn't they? And teams gather together, the, the coaches and the management, and they look at what they need. They look at where their weaknesses are. They look at what they'll need in three or four years when this guy retires, and then they draft according to that need. Well, God's choices are not because he needs anything from us. It's, it's not that we actually do anything that he can't do without us. He works his will on earth through people like you and me because he chooses to. He chooses to work that way. And we know also that that brings him the most glory. How does that bring him the most glory? Well, I'm not really sure we can answer that. But we know it does because the scripture says so. So does he need you or me in order to glorify himself? Well, he doesn't need us. He's chosen to work that way. It's not that he needs to do that. He's chosen to do that. So he doesn't need you. Who needs you? Well, we need you. God placed you here, that's 1 Corinthians 12, just as it pleased him. We all have purpose, we all have function, we all have ministry. We're all here because God placed us here for his glory. He chooses to work through vehicles, vessels like you and me. But that's his own sovereign choice. It's not out of necessity. It's not God who needs you here. It's we who need you here. God is working his will in his people. He's forming his people into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You take the wisest, the most powerful, the most noble man or woman who ever lived. Well, how far are they from the image of Christ? Well, the ones who are part of the many are as far as way the ones who are the anys, if I can put it that way. I mean, we're closer to being the next Muhammad Ali than any of, any of us are to being fully into the image of Christ. So what's the point here? That you're chosen. 
You're chosen by God's sovereign decree, by his will, freely exercised and brought about by nothing in you or me. By nothing that you and I have to offer to him other than our faith, our humility, our service. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Now notice that we're being called things here. He's reduced us to that impersonal of a level. This is God's working through us and in us in order to bring shame to those outside of Christ. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. How can you boast when your very inadequacies to accomplish anything that makes you useful to God's purposes are what he brings out here? It is your very inadequacies that, to accomplish anything that makes you useful in God's kingdom. How can we boast about that? Would we boast and say, look how grand I am. God chose me because he doesn't need me at all. Well, the second part would be perfectly true. God chose me not needing me for anything. Leave out the how grand I am part. We've got a pretty good statement. Even knowing there is nothing in me that incited God to choose me does not deny that God has purpose in you or me. He has purpose in the church. The foolish and the weak the low and despised, that's you and me in the world's eyes, are his chosen vessels of bringing shame to the world's wisdom. There's purpose in this. God chose what is foolish. God chose us to shame the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. The world's wisdom was back in verse 118. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are preaching. It's foolishness. But we fools, we believe in that cross and everything it means. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We weaklings see in the cross all our strength. We feed on Jesus Christ by his spirit. We draw life from the vine in whom we've been placed as branches. And I ask, which is going to prevail? Those inside or outside the church? Those who see the cross as folly or we who see it as our strength? Which one will prevail? Well, the church will prevail. The church, Christ is building his church. That's you and me together. We, the church, being built up together into a spiritual house. It's us being joined together and growing into a holy temple of the Lord. And by that, by us, by we weak and foolish people, God is going to glorify himself and shame the quote-unquote wise. Does that really shame the others? Shame in the Bible has the idea of a misplaced trust, of hopes invested but never realized. The word is used in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, like the rain that God sends, which does not return to him except that it accomplishes that for which he sent it, God's word in the gospel actually saves. It accomplishes what it was sent for. It doesn't bring shame because if you put your hope and your trust in it, it does what God says it will do. It actually saves. 
It doesn't bring shame. It will save you if you will repent of your sin. If you will believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and God raised him up on the third day, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed to tell you that that will save you. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And that gospel will, in fact, save if you believe in your heart that Christ died for you and God raised him up on the third day. What's well, the biblical idea of shame? I'm ashamed because what I invested my hope and my trust or my money or myself in, the promise that I had hoped for didn't come about. And I'm standing there bereft of my money, of my hope, of whatever it is I put into it. The gospel does not bring shame. But the apostle Paul says here, in verses 27, 28 of 1 Corinthians, that the church, that you and I, God's intent is for us to shame the world. How does that happen? Well, it begins with the world's hatred of the church. The world has always hated the church. The world is confounded and frustrated by the church's endurance, if you will. In the second century, there's a Roman philosopher named Celsus. He was very famous, very influential. And he wrote this of the church. He said, the Christian's injunction is like this. In other words, this is what they say. This is what you and I say. Quote, let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone stupid, anyone ignorant, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. This was his view of the church. And he thought the whole thing should just collapse way back then in the second century. In the 1800s, in the mid-1800s, Edward Gibbon, who was author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he blamed that decline and fall on Christianity. Now, to be fair, he also attributed their decline and fall to confiscatory tax rates levied against a shrinking base in order to prop up a growing population of dependents. But he did also blame it on the church. Friedrich Nietzsche, who died in 1900, the darling of the Enlightenment, the darling of those humanistic philosophies, he said Christianity robbed us of the harvest of the culture of the ancient world. So I bring all this up to ask a question. How is this, how is this worldly wisdom brought to shame? Those wise and powerful and noble out there who are so despising of the church. How do we bring them to shame? God says he's going to use the weak and the despised and the lowly and the ignoble, you and me, to bring to shame those outside who seem to be the opposite of all those things. How do we bring that shame? How is God using us to bring shame to them? If shame means that what you had hoped for didn't happen, your promises weren't met, it's by the church's durability. It's by the very fact that Jesus Christ is still building his church. He is still calling sinners to repent and his spirit is still giving them faith to believe. And closer to home, such worldly wisdom is shamed by our unity. And this becomes the Apostle Paul's point and the focus of these first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. 
The world out there is brought to shame by our unity. By you and me, the dregs of the world, and if you came from the heights of worldly praise to become a Christian, you've become that, the dregs of the world with the rest of us. We are a body of believers unified in Christ. You and I in the face of an exasperated world holding true to our faith, to our foolish faith, to our weaknesses that force us to find a crutch. And yet here we are, few in number, sitting apart from one another. What are we doing? Enduring as a church by the power of the Spirit of God, calling out His praises and being the church. By being here as Christ Jesus Himself, by His Spirit, is building His church. And for 20 centuries, a confounded world has been shamed. Because try as they might to be rid of us, here we are. Because we're pugnacious, because we're smart, no. Because God is faithful to his word. Because God is working in this place and keeping us together. Because our unity, small as we are, shames the world out there that says we ought not even exist. Everything we believe is foolishness to them. And they could see no reason for us to hang together as we have. Why do we do this? Well, we don't. It's God by his spirit working in us, in you, and keeping us together. The administration, as I said earlier today, is going to change. And I want to ask you, we have, we will soon have a president who's not a supporter of the church and a vice president who is antagonistic towards the church. What would happen, brethren, if let's say abortions quadrupled? Abortions at even a small rate is a disgrace, but let's say they quadrupled. What would happen to the church? Christ would still be building his church. Christ by his spirit and what he is doing in this place is bigger than anything that is happening outside this place. It doesn't mean we don't care about it. It doesn't mean we can't be active against it. Our confidence is in Christ Jesus. And we don't let these things shake us. We don't let these things divide us. What shames the world is when despite all the attacks, when despite all the derision, all the mockings, we hold true to our faith, come together as a body and worship and call out the praises of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Your constancy in the faith is how God brings shame to the worldly wise and powerful. He says, no human being will boast before him. You and I won't boast because we know we stand before him spotless and unblemished, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We'll bow down in humble adoration, which is the opposite of boasting. The wise and the powerful will not boast. If the church's enduring character didn't shame them in this life, their shame will be eternal in the next. Their wisdom, their strength, their nobility, which guarded their egos and brought forth their boasting, will not gain for them what they had hoped. That will bring their shame. Their antagonistic attitude did not kill God. It did not destroy your faith. The eternal life they denied will now stretch before them in all its awesome reality. And this is how God brings shame to them through us. 
It could be just as simple as because we endure. Because we endure as a body unified. As a body who refuses to bring artificial boundaries between us. As a body who does not say, I follow him or her or this author or this preacher. But I follow Christ, we together. And that brings shame. Because whatever hope they had to destroy this church, to rattle this church, I don't mean this church, I mean Christ's church in the largest sense, will not come true. As long as it is Christ Jesus who is building his church and that through us. Verse 30 says, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so the question again, how can you boast when you are totally dependent on Christ? I mean, who can boast when they're totally dependent on another? For our very life, we are dependent on Christ Jesus. And so we're going to brag even to each other, much less before him. Now this ties us back to verse 26, where it's God who did all the choosing. Here, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. It is God who chose you. It is God who, in choosing you, placed you in his son. And his choice of who would be in his son, as we said, was made before the world was created. His actual placement of you in his son is when he gave you faith to believe, when you confessed yourself a sinner in need of salvation, when you put your hope in Christ and his cross. This happened in time and space, but God's choice was an eternity past. So we're dependent. And dependency has to eliminate boasting. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's from John chapter 15, where the Lord tells us that we only bear fruit insofar as we remain in him, branches attached to the true vine. You simply cannot boast against someone on whom you are totally dependent. And Paul wraps this all up with, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And now you will see how boasting has been the point here. And we're going to go back to where Paul drew this from, which is Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I'm going to read to you Jeremiah 9, beginning at verse 17, because I want us to get the context. I want us to understand that Paul didn't just hunt around in his Bible to find something that sounded right. He saw a direct connection between Jeremiah 9.24 and the situation in Corinth back in the first century. He didn't just find a verse that sounded good. He found a passage that related to the situation that he was dealing with. Now it's not going, what we have in 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, it's going to be a little different from what we're going to read in Jeremiah 9. I'm not going to sort out that difference. That would be good for Sunday school, but not for this message. Just understand that Paul appropriated it. He didn't quote it exactly. And we'll just leave it at that. Jeremiah 9, 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the morning morning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard in Zion. How we are ruined, we are utterly shamed. Let's stop for a moment. They were utterly shamed because 
They believed that God's judgment was not coming. They were listening to false prophets, prophets, false priests who were calling peace in their time when Jeremiah, the word of God, was calling out destruction and you better submit now. Who was shamed? Those who did not believe God. Remember that this relates to 1 Corinthians 131. He says, we are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come to our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung on the, upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Now you can hear 1 Corinthians 1, can you not? But let, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So what is he saying about boasting in the Lord? They had boasted in themselves. They had failed to believe the word of God through Jeremiah. He told them God was judging them for their sin. The false prophets armed with wisdom, with power, with nobility. They said, peace, peace, peace in our day. Jeremiah spoke God's word that they must submit to Babylon. The wise and powerful had him thrown into a pit of mud. So which was shamed? What was the result of all that? Verse 19. The rich and powerful had to say how we are ruined. We are utterly Shamed In 586 B.C., Jerusalem's walls were breached, the temple was sacked, and the people were taken away captive. So how does this relate to the Corinthians? How does this relate to us today? Why did Paul cite this? It happened because of the refusal to believe God. The prophet in his foolishness stood on the massive, never-breached walls and cried out defeat. They refused to believe and they were destroyed. They were shamed by it. And this is what Paul took from Jeremiah. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. What was their boasting? Ultimately, what was their boasting? Their boasting was a determined refusal to believe God at his word. To not believe God is to say that I know better. Back to Corinthians. What does it mean to say, I follow Paul? I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. It means that I know better than you. And ultimately, if I say I know better than you, what am I saying? Why did Paul cite this from Jeremiah 9? Because it's saying, I know better than God. It's saying, I know better than God. I can choose better than you, but it's denying God's word. Is denying God's sovereign choice of you or me or anyone else for no other purposes than he chose you. His purpose in us, but in the choosing of us. There was nothing that caused God to say, I've got to have you or me. It's God's choice. In Jeremiah's day, the boasters were those who were determined to refuse God's word. Why did, God, why did Paul appropriate it? 
because of the Corinthians' obsession with following the right man, with finding their worth and having made the better choice. Their tribalism against others for whom Christ also died was at its root a failure to believe God. What does Jeremiah say that attracted Paul's pen? That failure to believe God at his word is to boast against God. This is the severity of Paul's warning to the church. When he says, no human being shall boast in the presence of God. Those who disbelieve God, those who hear God's word and refuse it to say, I know better, are saying, I know better than God. They're boasting against God himself. What does it mean to boast against God? Must we imitate Muhammad Ali and say God, God is the world's greatest? Is that what it means to boast in the Lord? Well, God is the greatest, but slogans seem to make him less. At least it does to me. Boasting in the Lord is what? Boasting in the Lord is to believe him, to trust his word and to believe that he, by that word, will do what his word says he will do. What does that word say? Jesus in John 17 prayed that you and I would be perfectly one as he and the Father are one. We spoke about this last week. The cross actually accomplishing what it was meant to accomplish, which is the unity of the church. So let him boast, boast in the Lord. To boast in the Lord is to believe God's word, to invest our all into it, to trust and obey that word. And to disbelieve that word, to break the bonds of unity and love with a believer, with a brother or sister in the Lord, is ultimately boasting against God. It's a failure to believe in his word. May the church never fall into this trap. It's ever so close where, like Holly, want to say, I am the greatest. It comes so near to our heart to want to do that. Paul gives us a great warning here. Believe in the Lord. To boast in the Lord is to believe in Him. To follow His word. And to do your all to promote the unity. Not just to not be divisive, as we've been saying. But actively to reach out to the brothers and sisters. To join your voices with us. To do all you can that we may be one. And that our unity will be that shame to the world that is God's purpose for us. Amen? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together, for giving us this word. We thank you, Father, for the power of your spirit and for the working of Jesus Christ, building this church up. We pray, Father, that it would continue, that you would continue to glorify yourself, even as it must be shame, bring shame to those who would have it be otherwise. Watch over us, Father. Continue to grow us into the bonds of fellowship, the image of Christ, and the unity that would please you most. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.